Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is organizing the world's life sciences expertise to enable biotech companies to build on-demand teams. You can check us out at Clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Kevin Judis, CEO at Dice Therapeutics. Thanks for joining us today, Kevin. Thanks for having me here, Rahul. It's a real pleasure. Wonderful. So Kevin, to kick us off, please walk us through you know, the arc of your career and how you got to what you're working on today. Sure. I was trained as a, an organic chemist in graduate school, and I did a postdoc that was really interesting in a lab that sort of straddled chemistry and biology. And I became, at that point, really interested in certain key aspects of how molecules bind to proteins and what happens after that. And that led me kind of naturally to a career in drug discovery. So I began my career at Genentech in the early 90s. And I mentioned that job in particular because, A, it was a great place to start my career. It was a fantastic environment for really vibrant scientists and a really creative spirit. And we took on a problem then that was quite challenging, which was we were trying to make small molecules that would disrupt protein interface targets. And we weren't very good at it <laughs> in the 90s. We really weren't. And looking back on it now, it's partly because we were hampered by what we understood about proteins. We thought we knew a lot in those days, you know, because there were a dozen or two dozen crystal structures in the PDB, and you could look at all 24 of them and think hard about it. And now they're probably 200 generated a day and put in the PDB, right? So the different world, but it was a great place to start my career. I decided, it was interesting, talking to people at Genentech about the early days of Genentech made me curious as to what it would be like to work in a startup, you know, because by that point, Genentech was and I think we were 3,000 people or something like that. And I got a call from some folks who were starting a company called Theravance in the late 90s. And I decided to make the jump. And that was a really, in retrospect, good decision for me because it exposed me to a lot of folks who really knew a lot about small molecule drug development. And I just learned a ton. I soaked up so much from those people. And it, it's worth mentioning who some of them were. At the time, you know, you're young and you just think like, okay, this is what happens. But in retrospect, I look back on it and I think, wow, that was a gift to get mentorship and occasional little bit of a butt kicking from various people who had been prominent in the industry. So, you know, the most prominent guy in that their firmament at the time was Roy Vagelos, who had been the chair and CEO at Merck, kind of when Merck was it in pharma, right, in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, it was intimidating to go to board meetings and present to Roy and other people that he pulled in. He pulled in the former head of just about everything at Merck, who had all recently retired. So the former head of chemistry, the former head of process chemistry, you know, safety assessment. So these are serious people with a lot of experience, and it was not, there was no fooling around. But boy, did we learn a lot. I think all of us who were there then would look back on it and say, yeah, that was an important formative experience. Anyway, I was about the 10th person at their events, and that was a super fun experience, a little hair-raising from time to time, but really exciting. And uh, I liked it, but I got a call after about five years at Theravance, and I put my first drug in the clinic, which was cool. I got a call from a person that I didn't know personally, but I really respected scientifically, Richard Scheller, who had just joined Genentech and was taking over research and wanted to lean more into small molecules. So Richard asked me to come back and run the small molecule group, and I did. And it was a lot of fun. Genentech was a 
very different place even than when I joined it 10 years before that. And Richard is a great guy. He's now chair of the Dice Board. So we had a lot of fun working together, built the group pretty significantly. But I realized while I was there, kind of interesting, I realized while I had been away at their events, I'd become a small company person. And Genentech struck me as hopelessly hidebound and bureaucratic. And I had this itch to go do another startup. And I got a call 2004, I guess, from a VC named Cammy Samuels at Person, who asked me to come consider a company that became a Cajun. So I left, went to a Cajun. That was fun because that was pre-Series A. We were sitting around the Burson offices, you know, writing business plans, eating pizza. It was like a scene out of Silicon Valley, but really interesting. And so I ran a Cajun for seven years. We got a drug into phase two. We were on the cusp of phase three. And I decided to make a transition and take a little time off. I recruited two really awesome people from Genentech, a guy named Kenneth Hillen, who was our chief medical officer, and John Doyle is our chief financial officer. They were both brilliant. So I went to the board and said, look, one of these people should take over because we're going into phase three and we're going public and can't think of two better people <laughs> to take us through that. You know, it's exhausting to do that, right? So I was a little bit tired. So I took a little time off and then started consulting with companies and got involved with a couple different companies that were starting. And so I had this interesting world in the 2013 timeframe where I was halftime at two companies. One of them was Dice. And I wound up going full-time with Dice because I thought we could do something important, which brings us full circle to where I started my career, which is this kind of holy grail of can you get small molecules that will block protein-protein interfaces? And then subheading on that, if you can do that, you can do, in some cases, what antibodies do, Right. And in that 15, 20 years since, or maybe 15 years since I first tried that problem, antibodies have become this incredibly dominant therapy. They got from really hard to make and, you know, impossible to scale up all this stuff to like, yeah, you can have an antibody against anything. It's almost like ordering it from Amazon. And then if you chose your target well, you're going to have a drug. So all of this progress had been made with antibody drugs. And a lot of it, maybe most of it is fine for injection, but some of it was in areas that just didn't really resonate. And that would be things like immunology, where you have chronic non-life-threatening diseases. Why are those people getting injections again? Oh yeah, because the targets are hard and you can't make small molecules. So maybe if you could, that would have an impact. Well, that's kind of a windy way to say, I started out as a chemist. I've been really lucky. Part of that luck has been scientific. You know, lots of people work hard on things and they just don't work. And once in a while things do work. And that's when you really start learning get yourself on a project that works, boy, do you learn a lot, you know, good, bad, and otherwise. And then the people, just the people that I was around that, again, I took for granted. Oh, everybody gets to present to Roy Vagelow. Sure. No, not really. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) That's just, you know, good fortune. And I'm, I'm curious, Kevin, when you first stepped into that CEO role for the first time, what's something that perhaps was a non-obvious learning, but that you had to pick up or figure out relatively quickly that you hadn't anticipated? Certainly a couple of things fall into that category. First off, when I took my first CEO job at Akeagen, I had been there for a few years as CSO and sort of acting CEO and the board promoted me. But I had a great mentor then, a guy named Brian Roberts, who was a and still is at Venrock. And Brian just took me under his wing and he knew I didn't know anything about business, right? And so he just took me under his wing and kind of schooled me up and it was super helpful. I would say the thing that I learned when I officially took over as CEO or starting a cage and I had to learn this was something that I had learned before, but you forget. And that is management really only, at least in my experience, it only works by persuasion. Like 
pushing and cajole, you know, like you have limited ability, despite the fact that technically speaking, everybody in the company reports to you and you can quote unquote, make them do whatever you want. If you have to make people do things, there's something wrong. And you're going to break the organization that way. If you push too much, then you got to ask yourself some questions. Like maybe this guy's not the right guy for the job and he's overwhelmed. That's possible. Maybe your idea is bad. And this guy is just smart and he's pushing back because he knows it's going to be dumb to do that or dangerous, you know, catastrophic to the company to do those things. If you think that all the way through and soak it in, whether you started with any humility or not, it will impart humility, right? Because you cannot force your will on things. I mean, I guess you could. I can't, right? Force my will on things and have an organization that works right. And it's simultaneously humbling. And kind of a relief, right? Like, oh, I'm not doing this alone. Everybody's got ideas and a lot of them are good and we need to build, you know, consensus. Ultimately, somebody has to make a decision, right? There are often two or three valid ways to do something. Somebody's got to decide. And if it goes high enough, you'll be deciding as the CEO. But you got to bring everybody along. And that wasn't always clear to me. I would sometimes mm. make these leaps and then just go out and expect people to jump on board. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Show your work here, right? Like, I see the answer, but I don't know how you got there. How do you go about and how have you refined your, you know, the art of persuasion for you? Just curious how, when you're in those situations, what's your own framework of how you navigate that? How about this? So <laughs> I'm not a religious person, but I, I was raised in a certain tenets of Catholicism. And one of the things we were taught as kids is the St. Francis prayer, what everybody calls it, right? Now make me a channel of thy peace. But there's a line in there somewhere that says, it is better to understand than to be understood. And I sometimes mm. think of that when I'm talking in situations where I'm thinking like, what I'm saying is so clear. It's pure genius. I don't know why people aren't printing t-shirts with what I'm saying, but they're resisting. At that moment, it is better to understand than to be understood. You can keep forcing the issue, but really those are moments I have found it's very productive to listen and respect both the intellect and the intentions of your peers. Or you know, if you're CEO, technically your subordinates, but really your peers. You got to listen to those people and figure out like, why are they not seeing the genius of my idea here? And that took some learning, but it has helped me a lot. You know, it really has just that simple thing of, because if I understand them, one of two things is going to happen and both are good. Either I'm going to understand uh, there's something wrong about what I'm pushing, or I will get to the bottom of, oh, I get it. I know why this person is scared. It's often fear. Like I'm scared of this because if you're mm. following things, you know, blah, blah, blah. Maybe that's a fear that comes from something that happened in their past. They saw something go sideways, in which case maybe I can help. Or maybe something I should be scared of that <laughs> I haven't thought about. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, that's great. Thanks for sharing that insight. I'm curious, as you've now been at various companies and, and leading various companies, talk to us about, let's say, the first time you went to go fundraise and how you approached that and what that looks like most recently and what the arc of your own approach to fundraising and how to go about doing it has changed. Oh, that's a really good question. And what I will say is that there are two variables in that equation that are changing all the time. So one is me understanding more about fundraising, understanding more about investors and what drives them what their fears are. And the other is fundraising is kind of fundamentally different if you're trying to start a company, which I think from your background, you know very well, right? You're trying to get seed money or series A, it's a different set of investors and it's a different set of problems that you're solving for. At this point, you know, we're about to start phase two at Dice. You're getting money from an entirely different set of investors who 
come at it with a different sort of intellectual framework they're hanging facts on. And the facts they're looking to hang are entirely different than you would have been talking about at Series A. So, you know, I would say it's important for people who are jumping into startups the first time, if they have anything to do with financing, just keep those things in mind, right? But the people who start Series A companies, the longer I'm in this business, the the more mystified I am by that whole process, because I can't understand why anyone would do it. It's so risky. It's so crazy to start a company from scratch. And yet those investors who have those guts to do that and the funds set up to do it, they're the reason that the industry continues to innovate, right? Because they're willing to take their lumps, a lot of stuff. So I would say it's been a learning curve for me and continues to be, frankly, a learning curve. But those are the big twists. It's like, you know, understanding who your audience is and what they're actually looking for. Yeah. And recognizing that changes over time. You know, if you stay with yeah. one company long enough, you, your whole investor crew will cycle in and out. All our yep. seed guys are gone. All our Series A guys are gone. I mean, you know, they're around, but they're yeah. just doing other Series A companies. Thanks for sharing that learning. I was very curious about that and have been and just been reflecting on even, you know, my own path. And, oh, I approached this thing like a dummy when I was raising the seed. Because <laughs> We all uh, do. Who point. doesn't? Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, until you do it two or three times, you're for sure going to make all kinds of mistakes. And yeah. you have a special challenge because you've gone outside your whole, your normal tribe of biotech people and you're into the techies. Yeah. And the, the techies, no offense to anyone in your audience, the techies are weird. They look at us as very weird. I had a fun thing a few years ago where I was helping, I was serving as a mentor in a class on entrepreneurship over at Berkeley. Yeah. And that was yeah. so fun. But there were six mentors and five of them were techies and there was me. And we would have the most hilarious conversations, having coffee during the break, you know, they were dumbfounded. You're raising how much money? (laughs) Yeah. That would keep our company going till the end of time. What are you doing with it? You know, and finally, I I finally had to tell them, and this was the winning argument. Look, dude, there is no Moore's law for rats. A rat weighs a third of a kilogram. It eats a certain amount. It lives a certain period of time. If you're going to do a one month safety study in rats, guess what? It's going to take at least a month. Like there's no, there's no way to accelerate that. We are still in some ways doing 1950 science. We do it much better, but you know, we're dealing with living things. And as you get into people, you're dealing with a very high ethical burden, not to harm anyone first and foremost. And it slows you down, right? As you know, from your background in clean ops, like, you know, and, and appropriately so I don't really have any beef with that. Like the agency wants to pour over your data. I'm glad they are. Well, so Kevin, before we jump into the work that you and your colleagues are now pursuing at DICE, I'd love to understand how you think about which problems are worth tackling. And also perhaps if we zoom out, any advice you have for folks that are aspiring to be entrepreneurs and what you know your own mental model looks like for that. Yeah, that's a rich vein. So how to choose problems. I think I have that's evolved for me over the years too. So when I started out, you know, one of the appealing things about protein protein interface targets was that they were so hard and it just seemed crazy. We were right on the bleeding edge of everything. We were far ahead in crystallography. We were far ahead in molecular modeling and all those things. And it felt very exhilarating. But I think over the years, I've come to realize like if you're choosing a problem, so I I don't know, I was trained as a synthetic chemist, right? So you, you make molecules sequentially and you draw up a synthetic route when you start. And a good rule of thumb for a chemist is if there's more than one step in the route, that you're pretty uncertain about, where there's like a question mark over the arrow or of A going to B, you probably should rethink that route. Because you can usually hammer your way through one serious problem, but like five in a row, that's just a recipe for misery and probably failure. So I've come to expand that thinking to how to choose problems. Like, okay, cool, PPI, good problem now when 
nine of those 10 things that used to be cutting edge are routine and commoditized, right? But not such a great problem in the 90s. Uh, when everything you did, every step you took was groundbreaking. I think you need to choose something that's groundbreaking and focus on that and try to get the rest of it off the shelf. And then in terms of choosing problems within the industry ecosystem, so that's the sort of technical angle I would I would suggest. With choosing problems within the industry, and this is a, a problem I think young entrepreneurs have, and I definitely had, you got to choose problems that are keeping people up at night. You got to have a story that ends with, if we solve this problem, then the following things accelerate in our industry, you know, dramatically, right? Or the following things that couldn't be done before now can be done. And because of that, we blah, 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 right? But it's the and statement that's really important. It's not, we achieve this technical hurdle. It's that by going over this technical hurdle, we now can have a higher success rate in talk studies. And we can prove that in the following ways, or we now can, you know, disrupt the following targets that previously had only been accessible to anybody's, you know, it's got to mean something to people that can't just be cool. I think that's, I don't know, it sounds obvious when I say it now, but when I was young, it was not so obvious. How do you go about figuring out what are those problems that people care about a lot? Yeah, I think one reason it's easier to do now than it was when I started is that I've bloodied my own forehead on a bunch of those problems, right? I've run into the XYZ problem. I realized like, wow, that's incredibly capricious, whatever this step is. And if there were a better way to do this thing, it would increase the probability of success in the whole endeavor meaningfully. And that's ultimately what we're all looking to do, feed things up and increase the PTS. If you could do things at the same speed, but with a higher success rate, that would be plenty. If you're speeding things up, you got to make sure that that saving time is always a good idea, but it can't come at the expense of quality or a lower PTS. Yeah, Go faster, faster with the same PTS, cool. Same rate with the better PTS, cool. If you can combine them, that's important. But one of those two things has got to be true. And you got to keep your eye on the ball here. And the ball is not papers in top journals. I mean, that can be part of the fun. The ball is getting a drug into humans that has a positive impact on their health and is safe. Yeah. You know, anything you're doing that accelerates that is great. Anything you're doing that's not, you should probably question. In this business, right? I mean, it's different than academics, but, you know, we're in a business. People give us money as investors because they want to return. And the, the happy fact of our business is if you make a drug that positively impacts human health, everybody's going to get paid. So it winds up, it's a very honorable job, right? You go to work every morning thinking, geez, if I do something that helps patients, everything's going to work out. Yeah. But if you lose sight of that, <laughs> then you can wind up spending a lot of money on cool stuff that doesn't really pay off in the end. Yeah, great. And so with that primer now, what did you decide to tackle at Dice? We decided at Dice, so we had a moment early in the company. You know, we started the company on a technology. It was a cool technology coming out of Stanford. As with most technologies, there's this kind of blank slate, like the first PowerPoint deck you make, you can write almost anything in it because technically speaking, almost anything's possible, right? Like if this works, the following 20 things that are really cool are going to happen. Then you get in there and you start doing the science and you realize, well, okay, this isn't going to work probably or not on any reasonable time frame. But look at this thing. This thing works. And in our case, we got some traction early on against with small molecules against a couple of protein-protein interface targets that I frankly was so surprised by, I questioned the results. I'm like, oh, it's got to be an artifact. Like, I can't be right. But it was. And we had really good scientists, have really good scientists. They just ran it all the ground. And then partly our own data, partly some external stuff that got the opportunities to publish at the right time. This light bulb came on and we thought, oh, okay, 
For this subset of protein-protein interfaces, we could probably generate small molecules to some fraction of them, not non-zero fraction. If it's one for 10, that's amazing. If, if it's one for three, that's out of the park home run. But if we can do that, there are probably antibody targets we can replace with small molecules. And if we get good at that, eventually we can go to targets that haven't been previously validated by antibodies. And you can sort of see then there's a run of work to be done that still holds true of what we were talking about a minute ago. If the word successful, useful drugs are going to appear on pharmacy shelves. And that seemed like the Venn diagram of like, this is the application of this technology that makes sense, will help get to drugs that previously couldn't be made. And if you make those drugs, you know, everybody on the money side is going to be happy, but you're going to be happy because you're going to impact patient lives in a favorable way. And that ultimately, I think for 95% of the people who go to lab every day, that's what's driving them, right? They want to work on something that they can point to and say, yeah, I did that. And these people are better because of that. Yeah, that's wonderful insight. I'm curious where in your journey did you figure out that Venn diagram for you? For me personally? Yeah. That's a really interesting question. So when I was a postdoc, and again, this is one of these kind of like, you know, luck plays a role in all this stuff. So when I was a grad student, I did pretty well, some luck involved, and I got into a really good postdoc lab. And at that time, the guy's name was Pete Schultz. Pete's lab was kind of the hottest place to be in the country. And so I very quickly had to learn humility that I hadn't in grad school because I realized there were people in there who were both way smarter than me and actually outworking me. <laughs> and that was kind of a wake-up call, like, oh, geez, these people are really good. And I once said, like, I've never been so happy to be a C student in my whole life, just hanging out with those people. I was learning a ton. But it was during that time, I also realized, like, I have a more pragmatic streak I thought I was going to be an academician. The boil down and the, the whole thought process was, actually, I think I can do really good science, but have it count in a really cool way at the end if I go into biotech, right, rather yeah. than academic. And my postdoc advisor thought I was insane. You're going to be able to get a good academic. Yeah, but at the end of the day, this is going to sound totally bizarre, but this was almost literally the thought I had. At the end of the day, the quality of your work in biotech is not judged by like the referees at nature or whatever. It's judged by a statistician somewhere in Bethesda who really doesn't care. Mm. And if that guy says thumbs up, then you have succeeded, mm. right? Mm. And if she says thumbs down, then you have failed. And there's not mm -hmm. much arguing about it. It's not who you know, mm -hmm. not what pressure mm -hmm. you put on the editor. <laughs> it's just like... Yeah. You did it. And I found that the idea of that challenge to be very exciting. There's something I say sometimes when I speak to you know our team at Dice, I like to remind them, you all are doing honorable work. You're working really hard. And yes, if this works, people are going to make a lot of money and blah, blah, blah. But fundamentally, if anybody makes a lot of money, it's going to be because a life-changing medicine has emerged from your work. And that's a great thing. And I don't think a lot of other professions necessarily have that. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to be able to say. Yeah. Yeah. And that's extremely nuanced, yet a very simple way to think about drug development. It's a great point. So Kevin, with that background now, talk to us a little bit about where DICE is from a development perspective, how large the team is and what you guys are working on now. So we have chosen yet another Venn diagram comes into play, right? If you can do what we were talking about a minute ago, and you can disrupt protein-protein interfaces and, and change the antibody paradigm, where do you want to do it? And the idea that we hit on pretty quickly was chronic, non-life-threatening indications. You know, that's where oral therapies are probably going to matter a lot and potentially even could democratize access to those medicines. 
not every derm in the country or rheumatologist is going to have full access to a suite of antibodies, et cetera. So we chose to go there. Our first target was IL-17. IL-17 has been hit very successfully by a couple of marketed antibodies out there that do wonderful things for psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis patients. But C.A, you know, it's a market that really cries out for orals. And I think one way to look at it is a number of good injectables there now, and only 20% of the market that exists is actually getting those drugs. So that's where we chose to go. A lot of hard work went into where we are now. We are on the cusp of starting phase 2B. We expect to start a phase 2B in psoriasis with our lead compound DC806 during the first half of this year. And we have a pipeline of really interesting compounds following it. Particularly given the environment that we're in right now, cross biotech and the macro financing environment, you've stayed quite lean, but achieved a lot of progress and been quite productive. I'm curious how you're thinking now about, you know, threading that needle between making sure you're not overextending, but obviously still have lots of execution work to do to continue building value in the company. That's a very nuanced topic. I'm sure you know. We have historically been pretty lean to the point that I always felt like we were flirting a little bit with burnout, right? So you got people doing lots and lots of different jobs. That's typical of a startup. It feels better to me. I've lived through a couple of down cycles and some of them were pretty severe. So, you know, when the dot-com bubble burst in 01, that was pretty ugly. And then, you know, the 08, 09 timeframe was really grim. That was sort of the proverbial nuclear winner. I think for at least a year or two, there were zero IPO and there were serious people talking about pretty serious changes to the biotech industry that would have been bad. So that experience has made me cautious. So we don't want to overhire. Having said that, you don't want to burn good people out. So there's always a tension. And I'm kind of relieved, honestly, that we're coming out of the frenzy of 20 and 21. Although it's a down market, a lot of people are suffering. It's not anything like 2009. You know, there was a fear in 2009 that the global economy was going to collapse and that biotech is just a blip and that was going with it for sure. And so this is not that. This is probably as close to a reasonable deflation of a bubble, i.e. not having a pop as I've ever seen. Our mission now at DICE is to grow the company to deal with the new challenges we have ahead of us, but to maintain some sensitivity to not overhire. Great. Well, Kevin, to wrap up, would love to ask you to reflect for a minute on your wonderful career. And uh, if you could, you know, share you know, one piece of advice that you wish you could provide your younger self, knowing all that you now know and, and what you've experienced. That's a really interesting question. And I guess what I would say is patience has never been my long suit, as they say. And if I could advise my younger self, I would advise him to be a little more patient. This is a business in particular, kind of coming back to what we were saying earlier about difference between tech and, yeah. and biotech. This is a business that takes a long time. And as I've gotten older and been around longer, I've come to appreciate the wisdom of that sometimes frustratingly slow pace, where some of it is hard and you can't accelerate it, like research. You just don't know if you're going to find what you're looking for. But then other stuff, when you get into the clinic, things are very slow and very meticulous. And over the years, I've come to really respect that. Like we are asking human volunteers to take experimental medicines in the hope that somebody after them is going to get better. That's a high ethical burden and it takes time. And it's appropriate that it is slow to get through that. So I would advise my younger self to be patient in both fronts. Research takes longer than you think it should always. And development takes a long time, but for a very good reason. 
Great. Well, Kevin, thanks for joining us today, for sharing your, I'm sure, many insight and wishing you and your colleagues continued success at, at DICE. It's been a real pleasure. I thank you so much for the invitation and uh, yeah, let's stay in touch. Wonderful. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.